Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, hello. Good morning, church. My name is Andre, lead pastor at the city. As always, uh, so good to be with you uh, this Sunday morning. Thanks so much for tuning in to our online gathering. Privilege as always to bring you God's word and encourage you around the scriptures. Uh, first of all, apologies. I do not have a sparkling sweater nor antlers today. I'm just in all black. And I also appreciate Joy for putting in the effort to dress up for this Christmas season that we're all so excited about. I uh, can't sparkle and dazzle you with, my, with a sweater, and so I'll just sparkle and dazzle you with my personality instead. Uh, as uh, many of you have, would have known by now and received an email update on this, uh, the staff and uh, along with the entire church really will be taking a two-week break at the end of December. That would mean that we would not have service on the 27th of December and the 3rd of January. Now, as many of you are well aware that the staff has been putting in a lot of work into these online gatherings and as such, haven't been really uh, able to take uh, a good solid break. And so as a board and a leadership team, this is something that we felt was really necessary uh, for the staff to uh, have. And so I want to encourage you to uh, encourage the staff even as they take a break and refrain from uh, putting any work or requests uh, on the staff team in that time and we'll rest together. And there'll be more information on how uh, your groups can pivot uh, even those weekends that we won't be having uh, Sunday services. So thank you, uh, the church board, as well as our leadership team for uh, you know, really prioritizing rest. And this is something that we hold in high value and high esteem in this church. And so really excited for our staff to recuperate, but also come back with a new, uh, a renewed vision for uh, life together uh, in our church and in the kingdom of God. So super excited about that. And so I have a couple of Sundays left with you. This Sunday, I have a talk that I feel will be really relevant for our church in this time. Next Sunday, I'll be doing one of my staple messages. I do this message every year. It's called A Year in Review. And this is a kind of stock take message where we'll be uh, going through a few questions that will take us through a kind of... Uh, you know, contemplation kind of process on uh, how we've conducted ourselves in a year. Perhaps we need to repent of certain things and recommit our lives to God. So really uh, excited to um, do that message next week. And of course, Christmas devotion on Christmas Day morning. And so this morning, uh, I would like to share a message that I feel uh, would be really relevant, but also uh, encouraging in this time. Now, first off, before I begin, I'd just like to get this out of the way. Usually with my preaching style, many of you are well aware of this. You've been here around, I've uh, been around a while and you know that typically with Andre's sermon, you know, I would do a really long, lengthy intro and work my way up to a sermon title. But for this morning, I just thought, you know, I'll switch it up, I'll do things a bit different. I'll just like to get it out of the way and tell you what I'll be talking about this morning. This morning, I'll be talking about money. I'll be talking about money. Now, some of you might be wondering, Andre, isn't it a bit poor taste? To be talking about money in this time where we are seeing people lose their jobs, we're seeing a recession, a possible recession looming, we're seeing businesses close down, and, and isn't the prudent thing to do to just bunker down, store up, hoard what we have, and wait out whatever comes in the future? Isn't it a bit poor taste to be talking about money in such a time? But I, on the other hand, think that it's precisely in a time like this that we need to recapture a Christ-centered biblical vision for money, for possessions, for finances, especially in a time like this. Because whether we choose to admit it or not, 
we are formed by the world that we, in which we live in. So one of the fundamental postures of disciples of Jesus is to go to God's word, capture the heart of God, the truth of his word, identify what is out of sync in our world and intentionally resist it. That's one of our primary postures as disciples, as believers of God. And as a church, you know, we have said it often that we're committed to discovering what it means to practice the way of Jesus in our world. And the way of Jesus is exactly what it sounds like. It's a way. It's a way of life. It's not just a set of ideals or principles. It is a way of life. And so in this time, we're seeing a whole bunch of self-preservational kind of tendencies or defaulting to them, hoarding, and also in this climate of economical uncertainty, fear, and anxiety with regard to the future. Let us talk about money. Now, this is my second time talking about money in my six years of preaching ministry. To get it out of the way, uh, no, this is not going to segue into some kind of fundraising campaign from you. We're not going to end this time with calling for an offering. None of that at all. So there's no hidden agenda here, just to clarify. Uh, hear, hear me in saying this. If you were to do a cursory reading of the Gospels, you would immediately see that Jesus actually has a lot to say about money. He often alludes to it on some level. Scholars estimate that some 15-20% to of Jesus' teachings have to do with money on some level. Now imagine, one-fifth of the sermons here in the city is about money. We'll perhaps have a lot, a lot smaller church, but perhaps a bigger budget. Now, I personally don't enjoy talking about this. And some of you probably hate it or have really traumatic experiences surrounding pastors talking about money in church. But I just can't ignore the fact that all through scriptures, all through especially the teachings of Jesus, we see our faith and our handling of finances being inextricably woven together. We may even say that the measure of our faith is evidenced by the management, by how we manage our finances. And so yes, this is not the most fun kind of message, but I believe in order for me to be a faithful shepherd of this community, in order for us to be a faithful biblical community, we need to dive into this topic on some kind of frequency together and realign our perspectives. We in the church uh, have this tendency to talk just about the 10%, just about the tithe, and ignore the rest of the 90%, as if to say that God has nothing to say about the way we manage the rest of our finances. It's all up to us. But I believe God has a lot to say about the way we handle our finances, not just the 10% kind of quote God obligation, but the way we conduct ourselves in this world. Most teachers I've observed don't communicate the gravity of what the writers of the New Testament describes as dangers and traps when it comes to our view on finances. Or we communicate principles and stop short of communicating a compelling alternative vision for what it means to steward our finances for the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not setting out this morning to just bombard you with information. My goal for all of us, and where, this is where I hope we'll all land on together as we close this message is that we would together as a community come to God with an open heart and be willing to hear what the Spirit has to say with regards to our finances, our possessions and our influence. How we spend, how we buy, 
how we view our possessions. And my prayer is that with an open heart that is willing to hear from the Spirit, we will grow and mature into a people with open hands, hands that are willing to give, to be generous to others in love, in service to all humanity. And so for this week, I'd like to speak to you on the subject of a provocative generosity. Provocative generosity. Let us pray even as we begin. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your words, oh God, your words that bring life, that brings illumination, that instructs us to how we ought to live in this world. And God, we pray this day that our thoughts as well as our perspectives will be aligned to yours, O God. God, we acknowledge that you are the Lord of our lives, that you are indeed Lord of all. And so we affirm the truth of your scriptures, the truth of your word. And God, we pray that you'll give us the grace and faith to trust you entirely, wholeheartedly, do not doubt pockets and aspects of your word, but to, re- to instead endeavor to surrender our whole lives to believe in what you have said. God, we pray that you give us the grace to do so even as we dive to this subject. Speak to us, Spirit, we pray. Come speak to us. Come lead us into all truth. We thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, John D. Rockefeller Sr. was an American business magnate, philanthropist, and is widely considered the wealthiest American of all time and the richest person in modern history. At the peak of his wealth, Rockefeller had a net worth of about 1% of the entire U.S. economy. He owned 90% of all the oil and gas industry of his time. Now, he was once asked at the peak of his wealth, how much money is enough? How much money is enough? And his answer is classic. He said this, just a little more. Just a little more. Doesn't that line sound familiar? Doesn't that line sound familiar? Do you feel like you would, personally, do you feel like you would be where you want to be if you just had a little more? A little more money for your salary, a little more cushion in your savings, a little more places to see, a little more space in a home, a little more stuff. But haven't we found in life that it is often the case that the more we get, the more we want. Contentment eludes us time and time again. We have often thought to ourselves, right, that once I attain this goal, once I have a little more, I will be happy. And we draw a kind of goal line for ourselves. Once I reach that line, I will be truly content and happy. Only for us to reach that line and for that line to move on further into the distance. And we often wonder to ourselves, am I ever going to reach that line? Am I ever going to have enough? Am I ever going to be truly happy? Now, this is a truth that cuts across the human condition. Human desire is infinite. On a theological level, we were made for God and we were made by God. And so nothing short of God in all of His glory, in all of His fullness, would ever truly and fully satisfy us. Augustine famously said this, Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in Thee. So for most of us, no matter how much money we make, things we acquire, or success we have, 
we, we will always want just a little bit more. And we are told by advertising by the world that the good life, that a happy life is found in accumulation, that more is better. And so we search for things that will make us happy, yet happiness never seems to come. Carl Rayner says this, that in the torment of the insufficiency of everything attainable, we learn that ultimately in this world, there is no finished symphony. Catch that. Isn't that haunting? There is no finished symphony. Think of that song even as it reached just its climax and it's about to hit the climax of the song and then it stops. That feeling of anticipation with no gratification is the human condition. And so if our strategy to deal with our desire for happiness and contentment is to earn more money and buy all the things on our list, then that is a strategy doomed to fail. I think of the words of Jesus in Luke 12. He says this, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. We are familiar with that line from Paul when he says, To live is Christ and to die is gain. But for many of us, we have reversed it and rewrote the script to say to live is gain, to die is Christ. To live on the earth is to gain, to accumulate, to build as much as I desire. And thank God when I die, I have Christ. But Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Richard Foster says this, Contemporary culture is plagued by the passion to possess. The unreason boasts abounds that the good life is found in accumulation, that more is better. Indeed, we often accept this notion without question, with the result that the lust for affluence in contemporary society has become psychotic. It has completely lost touch with reality. Furthermore, the pace of the modern world accentuates our sense of being fractured and fragmented. We feel strained, hurry, breathless. The complexity of rushing to achieve and accumulate more and more threatens frequently to overwhelm us. It seems there is no escape from the rat race. Now today, if we are honest with ourselves, our spending habits, views on money and possessions aren't too different from much of the world. We have unknowingly been discipled, conformed and shaped into the world and have lost our distinctiveness or in the words of Jesus, our saltiness. I myself would admit to be, that to be true, even in my own life. The lifestyles of most professing Christians are not substantially different from anyone else's. Too many in the church have adopted the world's indulgent attitude towards money. It is, it is as though the church has forgotten Jesus' mandate to invest in eternity. And it's in that vein that I consider the early church they had a kind of provocative generosity. How stunning their witness was to the world. Tim Keller aptly describes the early church to say, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it. In this way, the pagan society was stingy with money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. Such was early followers of Jesus. They lived in a manner that was strikingly different, that was distinct, that was well differentiated from the rest of the world. We need to be a people. We need to capture a vision as the people of God to grow to be financially promiscuous and extramaritically stingy with our sexuality. Much like the early church, that reputation would distinguish us, would differentiate us from the world. 
Leslie Newbergen says this, that we must live in a way, we must live in such a way that provokes questions to which the gospel is the answer. And so the vision we are to capture as God's people, as it pertains to our finances, is to grow to be a people who exhibit a kind of provocative generosity. And it's with that that we read this light-hearted passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 6. I encourage you to take out your Bible and read along with me. Matthew chapter 6 says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice the kind of phrasing in that last line, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, I've always thought that it read, uh, it should be read in this way, where your heart is, there your treasure would be also. Now, Tim Keller uh, once says this, that money flows effortlessly to that which is its God. And so it will be safe to say that where you spend will be ultimately where your affections are rooted in. The more money you devote to something, ultimately that which you devote money to will capture your affections, your longings, your loves and your desires. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's read on further in the text, verse 22. The lamb of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Therefore the light that is in you is darkness. How great is that darkness? Now it seems as though this paragraph sticks out like a sore thumb amidst the rest of the text, but it would do us good to read it in its original text. If you have a NIV Bible, you will see in the footnote that that word there which says good, if your eye is good, is translated as healthy in the NIV. And that word healthy would be the word to describe generous. If your eye is generous, your whole body will be full of life, light. And inversely, if your eye is bad or unhealthy, or in the original phrasing, stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. There are two ways to view the world here. It's either you view the world through a lens of generosity, through a lens of recognizing that you belong to a loving, generous Father, and because He has given you all things, and because He watches out for you and preserves you in the world, you get to be generous unto others. Or the other way to live life or to view life is that with, through that of a scarcity mentality or a poverty kind of mindset, is to be a stingy person, always hoarding, withholding from others, always fearful and anxious. There are two ways to view the world here. Either that which which, is, uh, which comes from a place of security as sons and daughters of a loving God, or it comes out of a place of a pauper and orphan who does not know the love, the abounding love and generosity of the Father. Now let's read on further in verse 24. It says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now notice in this text, Jesus puts mammon, or in some translations, money, as the primary competitor to the people of God. 
Jesus in his teachings talks about sexuality, pride, and other forms of idolatry. But it is mammon that he singles out as the ultimate threat. Jesus here refers to money as a personality rather than an object. That seems to be seems to say that there's a kind of spiritual force, a false god behind money that is constantly crying out for worship and trust. It isn't just a side temptation. It is a threat, a great threat to life in the kingdom of God. Now, what is mammon? Now, mammon is an Aramaic word that essentially means riches. But in the biblical sense, mammon would... Uh, mean wealth personified as an object of worship. It refers to the idolization of money and wealth to supplant, to replace the place of God in our lives. Peter Kreef says this about mammon. Mammon is the inordinate desire to possess wealth, goods, or objects of abstract value with the intention to keep it for oneself. Far beyond the dictates of basic survival and comfort, it's applied to a markedly high desire for and pursuit of wealth, status, and power. Mammon in the simplest form is a desire for abundance apart from God. It is to desire everything that God has, but to have it on one's own terms. Douglas Jones says this, Jesus affirmed mammon as the sole serious competitor to the Trinity. Jesus understood the antithesis or contrast between God's way and mammon's way as the most fundamental distinction in all of life and history. He didn't divide the world into left or right, liberal or conservative, or the envious versus the entrepreneur. Jesus didn't make mammon a side temptation for a few like we do. Typical Christians tend to shrink mammon into one of many small idols. For Jesus, mammon wasn't one idol among many equals. He singled it out as a direct competitor to God. And this is what we are resisting and warring against as we live in our world today. Now, I propose that the spirit of mammon didn't, didn't begin in Jesus' time. It actually originated from the garden with Adam, Eve, and the tempter. Mammon is not just an ideal or concept. It is very much demonic in nature because it sets itself. It wars against this idea of dependence on God. In the beginning, mankind was given dominion to steward the earth, to fuel and subdue it. And mankind had this kind of closeness, proximity and intimacy with the Father. What else could mankind have wanted? And yet Satan, the tempter, would tempt them by saying, there is more for you. God is holding out the good stuff from you. You can gain abundance apart from God. And that right there is the spirit of mammon. And our propose is one of the definitive spirits of our age, the pursuit of abundance, wealth, and prestige outside of the Creator. It is to derive happiness, security, freedom, and satisfaction from stuff, all of which comes only from God. It is to turn our accomplishments into our God. And we see this struggle in mammon all through the story of the Bible. Here's one example of how mammon infects a person. Uh, Ezekiel 26, this story of the ruler of Tyre, says this, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, This is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am God. I sit on the throne of God in the heart of seas. By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasures. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth. And because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. Really lengthy story, but 
it so speaks into this temptation of the human condition that many of us grapple with. Because if we were to take a step back and think about our own friends or friends that you used to have or even particular seasons in your life, we have more than likely seen this exact story played out. Fear, insecurity, a scarcity mentality that fuels an insatiable desire for more wealth, affluence, possession. And over time, one's affection gets placed outside of the kingdom of God. And this ultimately results in a life without God because simply put, you cannot serve two masters. And here we see the dangers of mammon because the truth is this, the path of mammon is ultimately a path away from God. It is to root our loves and longings, our deep desires, the deep desires of the human soul in this world and not in the coming age. So the question we land on today is this, how then do we resist the spirit of mammon, the temptation of power outside of God, and not to mention what researchers note that in this day we are exposed to some 4,000 advertisements through social media and various sources, and every one of these advertisements is designed to stoke the fires of discontentment in your heart with promises of happiness. How do we resist the way of the world? Let's read another passage of scripture from 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I encourage you to let every line in this text speak to you, sit with you, as you deeply contemplate and consider where you're at in terms of your view of finances. 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now that first line, it says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. That word great would mean uh, large in the wider sense. And so it more accurately translates to greatest. And that word gain is interestingly the same word used uh, to describe profit you know, by, by, by like the ledger, profit. And so another way to read this verse is, Godliness with contentment is the greatest profit. And so Paul is saying, that the best thing, the greatest thing, the most profitable thing is not wealth, it's not just a positive balance sheet, but spiritual growth, formation, Christ-likeness, gratitude, and contentment. And I love that godliness is tied with contentment because for many of us, we look at godliness just as you know the spiritual practices coming to church. But contentment, being grateful for what we have in this world, being satisfied and happy and not defaulting into accumulating more and more, which is the way of the world, that is a kind of godliness as well. Verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Let us land on this thought that all that we own, all of these things, everything we own, our house, our cars, our clothes, our handbags, we cannot take it with us. All of it is fleeting. All we can carry into the age to come is the human soul. We can't carry our material possessions. Verse 9, 
those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Notice the gravity of this language. Paul is saying that wealth outside of God is dangerous. It plunges people into ruin and destruction. It is a threat to the human soul. It can numb you to God and drive your soul into ruin. Paul goes on to say this, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice he says this, it is the love of money, not money that is the root of all evil. The love of money is at the heart of so much that is wrong with our world today. The root word for that word, uh, love, is the Greek word phila, which we all know describes a kind of love for friend, which is interesting to me. And my interpretation of that is that Paul is describing a kind of love for money that come at, at the expense of love for others, meaning we would not stop short of using or even oppressing others to get what we want, to get more money. And don't we see this played out in our world today, from sweatshops to sex slaveries, people have defaulted to a love for money over love for others. The last line in that text is this, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Notice the language here. It isn't a robust rejection of faith for money. It is a gradual, slow, I would say subtle kind of wandering. Over time, we find our allegiance and affections gravitating away from God and moving toward the God of mammon. And that's what happens when we have an unmanaged, uh, un, unspirit-led kind of relationship with money. Now, notice in those uh, verses that I read that there isn't a single command from verses 6 to 12. These are all just statements of reality, how life works. And before we move on further in the message, let's take a moment to consider, do we believe in Scripture? Do we believe in the words of Jesus and the writers of the New Testament? Do we believe in God? Do we believe in what they have to say about money? Or do we believe that this is all dated and irrelevant for our time? The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. What does that mean in your context, in our day and age? Let's move on. As Paul goes on to give pastoral instruction to Timothy, he says in this verse 11, But you, men of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Contextually, this good fight of faith is in direct reference to money because in many ways, this pool of mammon, this pool of prestige, of wealth, of accumulation, it demands a fight. It requires us to adopt a posture as disciples of Jesus to resist, to push back against the onslaught of our culture that seeks to conform us into a way that is different from the way Jesus intends for us to live. Let's skip down to verse 17. Whole chunk of Bible, but this is good for you. Verse 17, it says this, Command those who are rich in this present world. Now, often when we read this line, we think of someone else. We think of someone richer than us. And 
maybe this text is just not for me. I'm not the rich person that Paul's talking about here. It is someone else. But I know I don't have time to go into all the statistics. But for many of us living in Singapore, first world city state, we, class, we can be classified by international standards as rich. Many of us fall within the top single-digit percentage of wealthy people on the earth. And so we may not be rich by domestic standards, but I would dare say almost all of us would be would classify, would fall into the category of rich people by international standards. And so when we read this text, do not disconnect from it immediately. Paul is talking about you. He's talking about you. You are rich. He says this, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And so in this text, Paul gives us two main calls to resist the allure of riches, the God of mammon. He calls us to be content, to contentment and generosity. And he says this, in this way, you will lay up treasure as a firm foundation for the coming age. Paul clues us in, in this text, to this window of opportunity we have in our time on earth to take what is here on earth, temporal, fleeting, fading away, and see it translated into something that stands true, that lasts for all eternity. Now, this is a really horrible example, but just track me for a second. Imagine you are living in the days of the Japanese occupation here in Singapore. And we all know that during the time of occupation, the working currency was uh, banana money. And suppose, you know, uh, you lived through the occupation and Singapore was liberated by the British and they gave you a window opportunity here. You have some banana money. This currency is no longer valid. It's essentially worthless. But we're going to allow you to trade this money in for the working currency of that day. And suppose you were to wait it out and just not trade it anymore. And then you just take it to the bank, maybe 30 years down the road. Nobody's going to give you a single cent for that money. Maybe in this day you can put it into an antique shop or uh, trade it on carousel or something. By that day, you had a small window of opportunity to translate something that was fleeting, that was fading, that was slowly losing its value into something that bears value in a new age. And that's what we get to do with our time on earth. We get to take our material possessions, our wealth, our money, which is surely fleeting. It won't last forever. We get to see it translated into something that bears weight in eternity. This is but a small window of opportunity in light of all eternity. We probably saw this viral article recently of how a grandma in Malaysia lost 300,000 ringgit that she kept in Milo tins due to pests. This is super sad. And this goes to show that our money will one day fade away. But today we get to choose what to do with it. And what we choose to do with it will stand in eternity. Because here me is saying this, radical generosity only makes sense in light of eternity. Much of what we do would seem reckless and unprudent. But if you take these actions and put it in light of eternity, put it in light 
of what the scripture says, it makes complete sense. We have an unprecedented window of opportunity here. We can use our earthly resources to build eternal portfolios. The writer of Hebrews goes on to give us this instruction. He says this, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And I'd like to close off uh, with four modes of generosity that you can consider incorporating into your life, even as we make it one of our life go- life's goals to resist the God of mammon, to resist the pull of this culture that we're living in, to instead affirm our love and longings for God and His soon-coming kingdom. First kind of generosity is this, schedule generosity. And now this could be the tithe or regularly uh, giving to a cause or a person. This is to put in place structure to communicate value for uh, this value, really, generosity. If you truly value generosity, you will put in place structure to either facilitate or protect it. Schedule generosity. The next kind of generosity is this. It's spontaneous generosity. This will be responding to a need or giving outside of your scheduled giving. In order to do so, you must create margin or set aside a certain amount of money in your budget to always be prepared to give. And one of the things that Amy and I try to do as often as we can is to make sure we have physical cash on our person so that we will be able to give to people in need that we run into with spontaneous generosity. And it requires you to be prepared for those spontaneous spirit-led moments. The next kind of generosity is this. It's sacrificial generosity. This is going above and beyond the regular giving. Often this is done in response to the Spirit's leading. This would often look like intentionally decreasing one's comforts in order that we may be able to give. And we see this in Acts when the early church would sell off their possessions. They would liquidate everything just so they can give to those who are in need. It is said that it is easy to be generous in plenty, hard to be sacrificial. And in lack, it is easy to be sacrificial, yet hard to be generous. But Christian giving is to be marked by both radical generosity and a deep sacrifice that comes from a heart for others. The last kind of generosity is this, a secret generosity. This is my favorite. With the rise of social media, we live in a world where where we want everyone to see and to know what is the best about ourselves. We literally curate pages online devoted to ourselves. It feels good to inform others of how cool our life is, how blessed we are, or the great things we have contributed to the world, or even how pious and devoted we are. Alexander Pope says this, do good by stealth and blush to find it fame. Now, have you ever given in secret? I believe it does such a powerful work in the human soul where there's a tendency to want to identify ourselves as a source so that we can get praise and acclaim. But instead to resist it, we experience a kind of liberation from the praise of men and we experience a kind of delight from the Father that only comes from secrecy. Now, my school days uh, when I was in ministry school, there was a lot of need around me. And one of the things that I loved to do was to put Uh, money in people's Bibles when they would uh, leave their bag unattended. I would uh, sneakily uh, stick in the bag, take out their Bibles and stuff money in there. And there was once I was really led by the Spirit to uh, give 
a sum that was sizable in that day for me uh, to a person who I knew had a great need. The person had lost a job and didn't have money for groceries. And so I took a sum of money and I put it in the person's Bible. And I remember uh, sitting uh, maybe a couple rows from where the person was sitting as the person opened uh, his Bible and discovered all the money was in there. And uh, when the person uh, saw that money in there, the person instantly uh, broke out in a kind of spontaneous praise and, and worship to God. He was like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for providing for me. Thank you, Jesus, for giving this money. And he was like just going off and was just drawing a lot of attention to himself. And I remember sitting there thinking, wait a minute. Jesus didn't put that money in your Bible. I did. I sacrificed. I put money in your Bible. It should be me getting the praise. It should be me getting the acclaim. It should be me getting the attention. And as I caught myself shifting into that mode of thinking, the Holy Spirit began to deeply convict me in that moment. Here I was, desiring the praise and worship that He was giving to God. It reminds me of a particular person or character in the Bible. And I think that is what gets dealt with when we give in secret. Our hidden motives and desires get exposed and God deals with them. And we take a step back and just consider a moment. Isn't it a glorious vision knowing that our gifts, our money, can awaken in others a deep sense of gratitude and praise for God? Isn't that a vision worth giving to? Close off with a couple of quotes. Ken Hughes says this, There is no such thing as a Christian Scrooge. We may know some Scrooges who claim to be Christians, but I don't think you can claim to really know Christ and be a stingy person. The gospel opens our soul and with it our hands. It goes on to say this, The key to liberation from the power of materialism is not an exodus from culture, abandoning Wall Street or leaving the wealth of the nation to others, but the grace of giving. Give us for God. Disarm the power of money. They invite God's grace to flow through them. Now in closing, I want to be clear to say, I'm not advocating for all of y'all to sell all that you have and give all your money away. Because that would mean that someone would have to make money just, to, just so that all of our needs can be met. Proverbs says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children, children, children's children. And so it's really godly. It's a righteous thing for you to set aside savings for your children, but not just that, for your children, children. It is a biblical principle. But I read about this statistic somewhere that uh, 70% of the time, family assets are lost from one generation to the next, and the assets are gone 90% of the time by the third generation. And so it is safe to say that we shouldn't just pursue living an inheritance of wealth to our children and our children's children, but we should endeavor to leave them an inheritance, not just wealth, but of faith and character, such that they may be able to steward these resources for the kingdom of God. And one of the ways we pass on these values is by modeling generosity for our children. Hear me in saying this, there is nothing inherently virtuous about poverty. Nothing inherently virtuous about poverty. And the inverse would also stand true. What I'm saying to you today is this, that perhaps God wants to speak to you about how you utilize the 90%. 
how you utilize the money that you leave in your bank after you give off your tithe. To utilize your money, to resist the spirit of mammon, to subvert our culture's narrative, to provoke the hearts and minds, the imagination of a watching world, and proclaim an allegiance not to the things of the world, but to an eternal kingdom. When we are blessed and experience increase and promotion, perhaps we ought to consider increasing our standard of loving as opposed to our standard of living. Ken Hughes says this, Every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. And I love that. With every act of generosity, I declare that my allegiance is not to the spirit of mammon. My affections is not rooted in the world. My trust is not in wealth. My God is king. This is worship. To close off, this is what is said historically of early followers of Jesus. When they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they did not call him brethren after the flesh, but brethren of the spirit and in God. And there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. And verily, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. May we grow to be a people whose hearts are not rooted in the systems of the, this world, but in the eternal kingdom, such that we may display a provocative generosity in a world of accumulation. And isn't this what the Advent season is about this time as we anticipate Christmas Day, Christmas morning? Advent season is interestingly parked between two of the most consumeristic days in modern history, Thanksgiving, Black Friday sales, and Christmas shopping. And in the middle, in Advent, we get to take an opportunity to pause, to examine, to long, to pause and consider what gift we have received in Christ, to examine our hearts for where we have gone astray in the state of our world today. And it's also to long for Christ, His presence in our lives, and His soon coming return to make all things new. It is to have eternity as our cornerstone. And one of the ways we affirm our love and our allegiance to God's eternal kingdom is with the way we manage our finances on earth. And so I'd like to close off with doing this. We have read this liturgy for the first half of the year, every time we did uh, time of tithes and offerings, to tether our hearts into a biblical vision for giving, for generosity. I'd like to close off by having all of us read this liturgy together. And it's going to come out on screen. I invite you right now, uh, even as I take us through this liturgy, to lift your voice and read this uh, out loud, almost as a declaration to the principalities and powers, to the spirit of mammon, that my allegiance is not rooted in the things of the world, but in God and His kingdom. Let's read this liturgy together. Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love Him with free hearts and serve Him with renewed minds, who withstand the delusion of riches 
that chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. Amen. Let's go back into worship together. <laughs> 